Amen. Thank you, Michaela and Danielle. Appreciate that very much. Grab your Bibles. Join me in Romans chapter 9, if you will. Romans chapter 9. If you have your prayer bulletin, I would encourage you and uh, to grab that, grab the backup. We have the outline for us to follow along and uh, see where we're going, where we've been, and uh, kind of understand the passage before us. Brother Ryan's going to come and make his way down the middle aisle. He has some extra outlines. If you need one, we'd love for you to follow along. Just uh, kind of join us as we delve into God's Word and try to understand it and uh, glean it a little bit. And so you get his attention as make his way to the bat and uh, let him know that you need one. We'll be glad to get one in your hands. Last week, we're not going to do a ton of review, but last week, verses 22 through 24 is where we ended. And let's read verse 22, just kind of get ourselves back on the same page as the Scripture, the Holy Spirit in the passage. He said this, Paul wrote, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so asking that question, it's a culmination in many ways. We said this is the transition that Paul is now speaking to the Israelites, and he's setting up the next few chapters. Last week, we looked at chapter 11, verse 1, and he's questioning about, has Israel been replaced? Is Israel gone? What, how does this all play out in the future? And so he's, he's really reaching that transitional point. In our outline here before you, we've seen where we've already been throughout chapter number 9, and uh, last week we were talking about God's sovereignty versus man's accountability as those vessels, and we, we really tore apart those, those verses, some great truths in verses 22 and 23. So now we move on, and I told you it's going to be a quick review, that's it. Now we move on, we're going to look at the ending thoughts, there's a couple of them, in fact, as this uh, passage comes to a close, it's setting the table for the great salvation we enjoy, really an evangelistic chapter found in chapter 10. Now I would say this, and this may sound a little weird, but chapter 10, I believe, kind of starts before chapter 10 begins. You say, what in the world does that mean? What I mean is this, I think the last few verses, uh, really verse 30 on of this chapter, could easily be a part of chapter 10. It really is uh, carrying the thought through. And so we're going to treat it a little bit like that as we get into that next week. And yet, uh, I think it's important here, uh, these verses now before us, verse 25 through verse 29, Paul is taking some of those doctrinal truths, really the doctrinal truths we've exposed already in this passage, uh, of God's interaction action with mankind, all that he just described and illuminated us with in the prior verses, and now he shows how it has played out in the past history of Israel. He shows uh, where, where God's sovereign choice came to play and, and how God worked it all out. We'll see that and, and see how, man, God's sovereignty is intact when we consider all that God has done. In the next few chapters, we'll see how God's uh, interaction with man plays out in the future and how even presently now with introducing the Gentiles in and so forth and so on. So uh, what we'd say about this chapter is the first statement there on your outline is this or this passage. Paul gives us now in these verses a very practical, real demonstration and example of this chapter in action. So he's taking the doctrinal teaching of the, of the prior verses and now we're putting it into action where he's giving us Israel as the perfect illustration of what he's just been speaking of. 
You see, within the nation of Israel, as we've already studied going back to there to verse 6, there are some in Israel who have hardened their heart. And in doing so, God gave them their desire. God gave them over to a hardened heart like he did Pharaoh. We get that. We understand that. And, and certainly he's going to allude to that in this passage. And yet, there was also a remnant in Israel. Some who chose belief instead of going with the national unbelief that then demanded God's judgment. And so let's understand the immediate impact of this passage and our overall understanding of the election and God's sovereignty as these doctrines have played out before us in this passage and God's choosing of his people. Think of it this way. In consideration of these last few verses and understanding what he's about to say, but also looking backwards, if we think from a bird's eye view, an overarching thought and consideration, we'd have to make this statement. If election and God's choosing were defined as some would want us to think it is in this chapter, then the byproduct of God choosing Israel would have been that the whole nation is spiritually saved. That the whole nation would believe. That would be a natural, as some would have us to define it, understand God's sovereign choice and this hating Esau, loving Jacob, and how it was a, a national presentation. Uh, if election is as they defined it, then that would stipulate that all of Israel is saved. But we know the contrary, don't we? And this passage has already taught that, and, and he'll allude to it even here. So uh, we would say this, and I think this is, it's a big statement, I get it, but I think it's a true statement, I'd encourage you to think on it. For Israel to have eventually rejected God in the promised land, as he took in the promised land, and, and we could say under David and Solomon, maybe they adhered a little bit to God at different times, but we know there was sin in the camp and uh, for many years, and it just built and built and built and built until God took them into captivity and so forth. So they rejected God in the promised land, then as Paul writes Romans, they have just come off rejecting as a nation the Messiah rejecting Jesus Christ uh, then to say that all of Israel is saved because election means eternal destiny and election means uh, then we've got issues because it's uh, a great inconsistency with the dynamics of them being the chosen ones the elected if God's sovereign choice indeed deals with eternal destiny as we've seen in this passage, this idea of uh, loving, uh, loving Jacob, hating Esau, is dealing with a preferential position and a privileged position, as we see it here in our um, outline, back up all the way down to uh, letter B with the privileged service versus predestined salvation, sovereign preference versus supreme abhorrence, and so forth and so on. So step back a second, look at it overall in this chapter, and let's see another proof uh, of such doctrines being false. Israel was chosen for a preferential position, but salvation is not warranted by a preferential position. Salvation is only warranted by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, hence we see that, that Paul is getting to this. He's building up to because chapter number 10, you know what he starts out with? Man, I desire all of Israel to be saved. Now, wait a second. If Israel was chosen and they were this great nation and that, that being chosen as his people equated to salvation, Paul doesn't need to write the beginning of chapter 10 and what we studied in the beginning of chapter 9 where he says, listen, I wish myself to be accursed. He wouldn't have had to write that. But reality is Paul is building to a point saying, listen, friend, fellow Jew, Gentile, you need to trust and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. 
So understand he's building to this point, and it's a, a truth that Paul continues to, to restate. Literally, Jews will not be saved because they are Jews. They will be saved because they believe in Jesus Christ. Even in the tribulation and at the end, the prophets uh, prophesying 144,000 and so forth, they will be saved not because they are Jews, but because they trust Jesus Christ. Crucial point in our understanding of the end times and so forth. Okay, now, verse 25, and I love this. It gets a little bit more practical. All right, verse 25, we see a quote of Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23. Let's read verse 25. As he saith also in O.C., and that's Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. Let's read verse 26, because it's another quote too. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, he He's quoting Hosea again. Ye are not my people. There shall they be called the children of the living God. Now, do you remember the life of Hosea? I'll tell you, my friend, it, was, it is one of my favorite prophetical books. You say, why in the world? Man, you talk about a story beyond stories. Hosea the prophet and what he was commanded to do. Um, I, I think as youth pastors, when, when, uh, us preachers, if we're ever youth pastors, I think sometimes we lose our minds because I actually preached the entire book of Hosea to my youth group. Now what were you thinking, Pastor Henry? Uh, why? Because it's an amazing story. Now you know what else is found in Hosea? I think it is one of the most beautiful pictures of God. It, it is. It's one. Why? What do we know about Hosea? Hosea was told to go and marry a harlot. And it appears, and there's some debate a little bit whether she was a harlot before or after marriage. I think she was already a harlot, and he bought her and so forth, and got married, and she went back into adultery, because that's the picture of God in Israel that we see presented to us throughout the entire book of Hosea. And here's what's amazing. As we consider the, the, the story, as Hosea marries her, it's a graphic picture of just how Israel treated God all throughout the book. She basically spurs and spurns Hosea and who he is as, his, as her husband and goes back to her trade and everything else. And what's amazing in that, Hosea buys her back. Hosea also at times when she is off plying her trade, you know what he does? And this is amazing to me. He, he goes and puts food on the doorstep and provides for his wife who is an adulterer, who, who's basically left him and so forth. You say, wow, how does that, what, man, that's incredible. Why would he do that? Because you know why? It was a picture of divine love. When you and I, we play the spiritual adulterer as Israel did, as they went after other gods and worshiped them and put them before God, listen, they were spiritually unfaithful. They deserve for God to wipe them off the face of this earth. We'll see this in the passage because Isaiah says the same thing. And Paul quotes him. They deserve that. You know, Hosea presents a merciful, get it, long-suffering God that endured Israel. Where did we read that? Here in Romans chapter 9, verse 22. You remember that? We saw that last week. And to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Hosea is a beautiful book. What happens in the book of Hosea? Well, as we stated, Hosea married Gomer. Not Pyle, Gomer, his wife, okay? 
Sorry, I had to. Okay, and he married Gomer. And Gomer then gave him, in what's interesting, the book of Hosea. In chapter 1, we are presented with three different children they have. The first one is Jezreel, and uh, there's a valley by that name. It literally means to scatter, and literally that's what happened in the valley of Jezreel. Jehu, in that situation, we won't go into it for sake of time, but that plays into place here. And so there's his firstborn son, Jezreel, and uh, his name is... <laughs> means to be scattered, to be sown, it literally. And, and, and God's speaking of what he was going to do with Israel. He's going to spread them and scatter them and, and so forth. And we'll allude to that in a moment. Number two, we see Lo Ruhama, if you, that's how you pronounce it, just we'll go with it. It uh, means this no mercy, no mercy or pity. To literally, absence of mercy and compassion. Amazing statement. I, I, so Lohraham, a girl comes along, that's, that's her name, and, and soon after, uh, Gomer presents him with another baby girl, and that's, that's uh, her name. God says you will name her Loami. Loami literally meaning not my people, not my people. Okay, so now may I just interject here? This is a, a, an amazing part of the story of Hosea. Not only did he marry a harlot, an adulterer, not only did he marry someone unfaithful as that picture and so forth and had to endure that for years. The fact is this, as he has these children, what was the typical thing in, in, in the Jewish, in the Jewish uh, I don't know, tradition? Well, one of two things. They thought it very important about the meaning of the names of their children. Okay, they read into that. Those, that was important. Number two, also equally important and not greater, you often named your child after somebody in the family. One of the great ancestors, the patriarchs, right? Because when, when Zacharias came and said his name is John the Baptist, you're like, oh, no, no, no. You must have hit your head, Zacharias. What, John, there's no John in the family. So that was a Jewish tradition to do that. Could you imagine what life would have been like for these three kids? Hey, there's Jezreel. Jezreel scattered. You don't have Jezreel and his family. Oh, yeah, there's Lo Ruhama. What is Lo Ruhama? No mercy. Well, don't play with her. Don't get in a wrestling match. I mean, you tell you, no mercy. Who in the world names her kid no mercy? And then you come to Lo Am I, not my people. That's a good way to win friends, isn't it? I mean, you think about that, their names, you say, well, well, man, that's crazy. Those are kind of off the word. Well, why? Because their names, don't miss it, told the story of God's interaction with Israel that was coming. What do we know to be true of God interacting with Israel? Well, these names tell the story that God was going to scatter the nation. We see that. There are some living here who... You have lived during a time when there was no such thing as Israel the nation. Didn't exist. Oh, there may have been a few people there, but the reality was, was, it, was it was all Middle Easterns. It was uh, those Palestinians and so forth. There, there was not a nation of Israel. See, uh, for many, many years after the time of, uh, of presented to us prophetically in the Old Testament, the fact is, boy, Israel was scattered, especially after uh, there in, in Jerusalem defeated and so forth. And so, I mean, a total scattering. So we've seen that come to, come to fruition. N- number two, we say uh, the next thing, the reality is, as you look at them, has Israel been shown mercy and compassion by the world or the lack thereof? Lack thereof. Uh, I find it interesting, the Pope just came out this week and talked about how we need to be kind to the Jews. Now, there's some irony there, but anyway, um, 
The fact is this. You, why is he saying that? Because, you know what? Anti-Semitism is still alive and strong today. Anti-Jew. It's still out there. It's still very prevalent. Why? Because I'm telling you, they're reaping some of the judgment that God brought on them. And this was the truth. This is playing out. God is prophesying this back in Hosea long before Christ came along. And he's saying, listen, this is going to happen. They're going to be scattered. There's not going to be shown mercy. He was even going to hold back his mercy. Isn't that interesting how well that plays into the rest of chapter 9 that we've studied? God chose to bless him at one point. Now he's choosing to hold back his blessing, hold back his mercy and compassion. And now we come to the last part. And man, what a statement. Not my people. You know, much of the world would laugh. They would scoff at the thought that the Jews are God's people today. They look at what's befallen them. They look at what has happened to them. And, and, and they look and see, wow, that doesn't look like a nation who the God of all creation has chosen them, that they're God's people. Uh, literally, they're going through a temporary time, might we say, where God has forsaken them, where God has said, okay, I'm going to allow you as a nation to go the path of your unbelief. And we've seen that play out. And so uh, that certainly comes to play here. This kind of sets the table for what Paul is quoting in the verses here. You see, these children served as the accurate foretelling of what was going to befall Israel. What was going to befall Israel. Here is their future spelled out or presented to them in the children of Hosea and Gomer. Quite an amazing prophetical uh, means that God used to teach the nation of Israel to tell them. They were telling this story. And yet throughout the entire book of Hosea, God makes it clear that there is going to come a time of restoration to that privileged position that it lies out there in the future. See, uh, what, what Israel did in their actions that originated in unbelief it would not change God's ultimate purposes. And I'm thankful for that. They, they're suffering the consequences of their choices naturally, their unbelief. We get that. that even today, they're, they're still suffering the consequences of that. But I'll tell you, my friend, even in their failures, God's purposes will never be messed up. And that's a running theme throughout this passage. And so we've put it here as truth number one. May we just present it this way. Uh, the purposes of God will be carried out in spite of all the sad failures of mankind. You see, just because Israel failed doesn't mean it derailed God's plan and purpose even for Israel. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That even though Israel failed him, and they didn't, they didn't have and demonstrate great belief in God, the fact is, it doesn't derail God's plan and purposes. It doesn't uh, change it. And yet, in the meantime, what do we find happening? Well, it sets the table, opens the door for the age of the Gentiles, of which you and I have been uh, beneficiaries, if we might put it that way. See, those who are not initially of the privileged position will be invited to come. And as he uses the terminology from Hosea here, Paul applies it in such a way that you and I, those who, can, who believe in Jesus Christ, can now be part of the beloved of God. That special term to be part of the bride. That special term to be the, the wife of the beloved. Uh, he directly quotes from Hosea Chapter 1 and verse 10 and verse 26, he says, You're not my people. There they shall be called the children of the living God. Ye are that, that are not my people. 
And what a statement. There shall they be called the children of the living God. What a presentation. See, throughout the book of Hosea, here's what's neat about that prophecy. There are implications, there are references to the reality that during the time of Israel's uh, unfaithfulness, uh, their time where they're scattered and forsaken on some level by God, the fact is God would draw the Gentiles to him. That God was going to open that door and invite them into his fold Uh, Just as one day he'll draw back the Israelites themselves, those out of the nation in faith. And he says, you're not simply going to be the people of God in a sense of preference and privilege, but you're going to be the children of the living God. You're going to enjoy a very special, unique relationship based upon Jesus Christ. Literally, as we have already seen in Romans, they would be children of faith. As he's alluded to and is going to embark upon elaborating on the fact that we are all children of Abraham. Why? Because we're children of faith. And that's the description here, uh, uh, really a reference to that. Now, don't forget, he's elaborating on verse 24. Remember, look at back at verse 24. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So he's starting to open that door, present, hey, Gentiles are going to be part of this. And he's building up to a couple chapters later. Do you remember what he presents there, the end of chapter 11, I believe it is? He says, listen, the Gentiles are grafted in, like you graft into a plant. They're part of the family of God. They are grafted in. And he, he, he addresses the Jews and how to embrace that. He addresses the Gentiles and say, don't take your position for granted. And uh, don't look down on the Jews. And I find it funny how many Christians look down on the Jews when there's a chapter and verse that says, believers, don't look down on the Jews. <laughs> Just because now you've been grafted, don't do that. And, and we'll get to that in the passage coming in. But he's, he's kind of setting the table. He's building up to it in a great truth. And not to leave the Jews out, Paul goes on to say, not only will Gentiles who have not been my people, they'll be my people, they'll be the children of the living God, but now in verse 27, look at it, he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. So he's saying, yeah, listen, this is, let's talk about Israel. Let's not leave them out. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Now that's an interesting statement. It's a warning found here in this allusion or reference back to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 is where this verse is found. The first allusion here of this passage is from Isaiah is about the Jews being mercifully allowed to come back in the promised land. There was a remnant that returned, a group. Now let me ask you this, and very simple, how many Jews got carried away and captain, well, man, you, you can't name it. It was a, uh, in a very mathematical term, it was a bunch. It was a lot. Between 722 B.C., 586 B.C., when Judah and uh, Israel fell first, and then Judah came later. Hosea is actually already prophesying after uh, Israel has fallen, and Judah, he's warning Judah and saying, listen, look at your sister, look what happened here, and, uh, and so forth. But they are both carried into captivity. There's a whole bunch of Jews that are carried away in captivity. Let me ask you this. A whole bunch are carried away. How many return? Just a remnant. Just a few. 
That's what Paul's quoting here, and he's saying, hey, there's an important thing. They were as the number of the sand, and, and remember, uh, during the times of captivity for the Jews, there were many rulers who said, man, there's too many Jews. We've got to be careful because they're numbers. We don't want them, you know, back to Egypt and so forth, and even in captivity, Babylonia and so forth, they kept the Jews under because they didn't want them to become too many and so forth. So their numbers are as the sand as described here in this verse, the sand of the sea, but only a remnant were saved. In other words, there, as he, Isaiah, is referring to, only a a certain amount, a small amount, were going to return to the homeland. You say, why in the world is Paul quoting that? You know, why does that have to do with with Romans chapter 9? Well, listen, Paul is taking what happened physically and applying it spiritually. He's taking a truth and saying, listen, uh, l- let me quote Isaiah here. Because back then, when they were carried away into captivity, not everybody came back. In fact, it was a small remnant, just a small group. You know what he's saying, and we see it here in the outline. We put it this way. Though the nation is great in number, and, and my friend, it's going to be amazing. Uh, we're not going to be here to see it in the tribulation, but reality is this. It's going to be amazing to see all the Jews gather together and, and things transpiring with the world and so forth. And, and even the 144,000. I mean, it's going to be amazing thing to see all these Jews and yet the fact is this even as that nation is restored on some level there will be Jews who still don't believe in Jesus Christ there will be a remnant who is and Paul is speaking of being spiritually saved here so he's expounding upon as he's going to present who is the family of God who are the children of the living God it's Jew and Gentile not by your nationality, not by who your ancestor was. No, by faith is how you come to be a child of the living God. See, uh, it's a defining moment for the nation of Israel. Paul's making it clear that salvation is not due to their privileged position, but their faith in God. And yet, in all of this, what's God doing? He is staying true to his promises. He's staying true to his word. Uh, He hasn't changed anything. All the promises he made to Israel are going to come to fruition. And Paul reconfirms this. In his sovereignty, in his graciousness and mercy and so forth, all throughout God's interactions with mankind, you can take God's promises to the bank in other words we put it this way and i think truth number two sums it up well the promises of god will be realized in spite of the seeming forfeitures of mankind see his purposes are going to be realized regardless of our failures and my friend the promises of god will be realized in spite of our forfeitures and isn't that great can i ask you today some of the promises that God has given you and I, even after being a believer, do you feel like you're deserving of heaven? I sure don't. My failures and my, the things that I don't do right and the things that I, I don't live perfect. And I know heaven's a place for perfect people. Man, I am just not, I am not deserving of it. And if God said, okay, I'm going to save you, but as like we do with some things, you have a probational period. Wouldn't we be in trouble? Wouldn't we be in trouble? I'm so glad that this isn't probationary, that God didn't say, okay, I'm going to save you, but if you slip up, I'm taking it away. Man, that would be difficult. I don't know if any of us would be saved (laughs) for very long. Fact is this, I'm thankful that as God has made promises, what was God's promise? Well, chapter 10 is going to present it. That whosoever believeth in him, that whosoever believeth in him, 
and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Take the promise to the bank. Doesn't change the fact. Doesn't change the reality. Well, you know, I, I, I slipped up here. And I mess- Yeah, you, you did. And, and we're striving to please God and to be holy and sanctified. But I sure am thankful that our, what could be termed as forfeitures, don't cancel God's promises. So it is here. And uh, he, to bolster this presentation of the point, Paul quotes from Isaiah once more. He quotes verse 23 of Isaiah chapter 10 in verse 28. Notice it. What a statement. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Now, notice the statement. Paul assures us that God's going to finish the work. You know what I like about that? Paul says it later. He that has begun a good work in you will be faithful to perform it. God finishes the job, and you can take his promises and his purposes, and he's going to see all of them come to fruition and the fulfillment. He's going to finish it. He keeps his word and his promises. And what's he alluding to? Yes or no? Did God bring a remnant of Israel back to the promised land? Yeah, he did. Israel can look back and say, you know what? There were people that went back, and, and there was Jeremiah, and there is uh, those guys that helped live and rebuilt the wall. And, and yeah, God kept his word. He, he finished the work that he said. You realize that even before many of the Jews were carried away to captivity, you remember what God was prophesying through his prophets? This is what's going to happen. Some of you are going to be carried away captive. You're going to be taken away to foreign land. But I shall remember you, and I will bring some of you back to the land. Even before they were carried away captive, God is saying this what happened well Isaiah wrote listen God finishes his work God finishes his work and what he's saying is listen you can look back at history and God did exactly what he said he'll do and at the end of this world God's going and I love the statement in that verse he's going to make short work of it all I don't know forgive me in my uh, juvenile meanderings Um, you ever hear the phrase someone makes short work of it I just wonder if that came from this verse here because it literally says that God's going to make short work. uh, The Lord's going to make that upon the earth. It is very possible that is the reference to the tribulation uh, where all the prophecies concerning Israel and this world will come to pass. He'll make short work of all the earth, of mankind who, who shakes his fist as God even though judgment's falling upon this earth. He'll make short work of it. His righteousness will be exalted, as that verse alludes to. And the fact is this, all men everywhere will know that God's sovereignty is true and real and righteous, and that God indeed is ruler of all and master of all. He is the potter, as we've alluded to, as Paul has taught us in these previous uh, verses that we've read. And then one last quote, and we're done. He quotes Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9 and verse 29. Notice what he says. And as Isaiah Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath hath left us a seed, a remnant, a, a small group. We had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Now listen to me. I think this is an important thing to, to, to connect. You know what? this passage in the middle started out with a question in verse 14 look at it what shall we say then is there unrighteousness with god 
We get now to verse 29, and what do we have? Well, the Lord of the Sabbath is a, a, is a second take, we might describe it as that, as the title, the Lord of hosts. What does the title, Lord of hosts, have to do with? Listen, God has all the power that he needs. God has everything with him that he can do anything and everything. He is the Lord of hosts. He is all-powerful. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Yet in that, that power he has chosen to mitigate it here through mercy and compassion by doing what? Leaving a remnant a seed. What did Israel deserve? And don't miss it. Paul's saying Israel deserved. In fact, who's he quoting? Isaiah. Isaiah's saying it back in the Old Testament. You know what Israel deserves? Total annihilation. We deserve to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, their wickedness rose to heaven. God knew about it, heard about it, understood it, and said, listen, um, you want to say make an example. The fact is this. It wasn't as much as God making an example as God judging their wickedness. And the reality is this. They weren't an example as much as they were exactly what all of us deserve. Our wickedness. Deserves judgment. And Israel, through Isaiah, Paul reminding us here, it is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Verse 14 says, Is God unrighteous in the way he works? <laughs> you can't consider the history of Israel. How God left them a remnant in, in the promised land. How God in the future is going to allow some of Israel and, and lead some of them to come to put the faith and trust in Him and restore them in many ways. Hey, you can't understand God's workings with man, specifically with Israel, and come to the conclusion that God is unrighteous. What you can come to is God is merciful. He is compassionate. He is a great and loving God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. But oh, my friend, how he displays blessings that have been forfeited. How he gives blessings and kindness and love to those who don't deserve it. You see, Israel as a nation is not deserving of what lies ahead in the future in the area of national blessing and restoration. But God keeps his promises and he fulfills his purposes. He'll see it done. The last statement is this, as Paul now sets, again, the table. I've used that terminology quite a bit, but I want you to understand he really is setting the table, preparing, laying a foundation. God has been both gracious and merciful to Israel, and God has similarly opened the door to any believing Jew or Gentile. And I love this statement. I've used it a lot tonight, and it comes from that verse 26. A child of the living God. A child of the living God. Aren't you thankful tonight your God is living? We serve a living God, gracious God, compassionate God, a long-suffering God, a God who is sovereign in His choices and His privileged positions and preferential treatment that He gives us, certainly. But He's also a sovereign God who said this, whosoever will, and who sent His Son to die on a cruel cross so you and I could gain heaven when what? We deserve hell. To God be the glory. Amen.